Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Carol Yan about her article, Self-Reported Olfactory Loss Associates with Outpatient Clinical Course in COVID-19. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube 4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host, Dr. David Petker, and with me today is Dr. Carol Yan of the University of California, San Diego, and we're going to talk about her uh, recent publication in IFAR entitled Self-Reported Olfactory Loss Associates with Outpatient Clinical Course in COVID-19. Carol, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. How's the weather in San Diego? We're getting pretty lucky. It's actually getting back to more classic San Diego, sunny and in the 70s. So what, what was it? Were you having rain or what was the problem? Yeah, we actually we actually had a couple months of rain that was a little bit out of the ordinary for us. But, you know, everything looks nice and green again. And so with social distancing protocols, I think we're still lucky to be able to go outside. So Yeah. Well, good. Well, be careful because a couple more months of rain in Milwaukee may pass you as uh, the most desirable place to live in the United States. <laughs> We're not going to let that happen. So yeah. <laughs> luckily, the weather is turning for the better. Good, good. So normally, uh, I will ask people what got them interested in this line of research. But uh, I think given the global pandemic, there's nobody on the face of the earth that this hasn't touched. So we'll skip over that. But tell me about your study. Tell me about, uh, you know, kind of give me the, the cliff notes on what you did, what you looked at, what you found, those sorts of things. So this is a follow-up study to our initial one where we noticed the association between smell loss and COVID-19, and this has been validated in now many studies across the world. So our group at UC San Diego was interested in particularly to see if smell loss was at all correlated with clinical outcomes. We were noticing just anecdotally that people who reported smell loss seem to be those who were able to self-quarantine at home compared to those who were hospitalized. And in fact, I actually saw a blurb on CNN where Cuomo mentioned the same thing about his wife having smell loss, but actually feeling it overall better, not having the high spiking fevers that he was. So that kind of triggered our interest. The study was a retrospective review of patients presenting to our hospital system, and we looked at patients who had PCR-confirmed COVID-19 infections and looked at their smell loss and taste loss. So this was a self-reported study, and we retrospectively looked at their clinical outcomes, whether they were admitted, whether they were sent home, and then their clinical characteristics like their fever, respiratory rate, vitals, and their self-reported smell loss and saw how much of the smell loss correlated with their clinical outcomes. We adjusted for variables such as their other medical comorbidities like diabetes, their age. We found that on adjusted analysis, smell loss was 
independently and very strongly associated with outpatient care. So it was an odd ratio of uh, 0.09, which essentially means that people who were outpatient treated for COVID-19 were 10 times more likely to have smell loss than those who were admitted to the hospital, at least in our cohort. You mentioned your prior study. Now, in that one, you found that the patients that complained of smell loss typically had complete anosmia. Is that right? That's right. This is not a subtle finding for a lot of patients, and it's very much different than what we see in our general practice, which typically people don't realize they have smell loss for quite some time. But instead, those with later diagnosed COVID-19 notice that they have acute and profound smell loss and often taste as well. Before I I, I go on, I I have to give you credit for this and and point out a really fascinating fact. The altmetric attention score, you had this manuscript and your other manuscript, which was, I don't know know if that's actually in print yet or not, but the Association of Chemosensory Dysfunction and COVID-19 in Patients Presenting with Influenza-like Symptoms, both had really high altmetric scores. And for those people who don't know, altmetric is a weighted count of all the online attention found for an individual research project. So it looks at news outlets and social networks and blogs, Wikipedia, public policy, all those types of things, and then it calculates the score. And this paper, as you probably know, has the highest altmetric score, not only in the history of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, but probably of all otolaryngology articles ever. So really quite a feat. That's that's pretty impressive. Oh, thank you. We're honored to have, you know, gotten so much attention. I think the findings were quite timely, but it's really triggered this global, you know, interest and it's been amazing to see all the efforts and research that's come out of this unfortunate pandemic that we've had. So I think the ENT community and everyone else really has a newfound interest in smell loss, you know, which really was not so present before this. I think we are looking forward to seeing a lot more exciting research being done in this field. Now, how did you do the study? Tell me about the inpatients, outpatients, what kind of questions you asked them, those sorts of things. This is more of a retrospective evaluation. So we first looked through their electronic medical records to see if they were asked about smell loss at the time of presentation of symptoms. We were fortunate here at UC San Diego that smell loss and taste is now a screening question for anyone who comes in with concerns for COVID-19. So they're now asked prospectively, essentially before they're even diagnosed with the disease. And so these people, we were able to go through the charts and see who were asked about smell loss at the time of the diagnosis. And that captured a majority of our patients in this cohort. And then if we did not have that information, we contacted these patients, and then that was the more of the retrospective comparison, and to ask them at the time of presentation, did they have smell loss? And then as well as during their whole course of their illness, did they have smell loss? So we asked mm-hmm. both initial symptoms and symptoms overall. And then we use more kind of like a modified VAS scoring, but survey form kind of on a scale of zero to 10, where would you put yourself? They would tell us their baseline smell levels at the time of presentation, at the time of diagnosis, and then their current smell as well. And how accurate is self-reporting of olfactory dysfunction? 
That's a great question. And myself, I'm learning a lot about of this era as well. So previously, you know, it's been published that self-reported smell loss is very specific, meaning if you think that you have smell loss, you do, you know, you're not wrong, but it's often underreported. And so it's not quite sensitive. So people often don't realize they have smell loss until, you know, much later or some incident triggers it. And I think in the setting of the COVID patients in the COVID era, we're finding that similarly, that's the case, is that people are often underreporting their smell loss or not acknowledging their smell loss. And so certainly that is a um, known bias of our study is that when we're looking at just self-reported or even could this be underreported by the people who are being admitted to the hospitals? Are they already suffering from shortness of breath, from high-grade fevers, and just feeling quite sick that the loss of smell is the last thing on their mind? Right, yeah. So they've got bigger fish to fry. Than, exactly. uh, than the sense of smell, right? Yeah. No. So it's interesting that that uh, just recently, I asked a patient, as one of my normal. Now this is not a COVID nineteen. This is just a chronic rhinosinusitis patient. But I asked him, "How was your sense of smell?" And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, "Well, compared to what? <laughs> All I know is what I know, and and it's been like that forever." So I get. I, I think a lot of people have a hard time with that. With a weakened sense of smell and, and where theirs is compared to their peers and things like that. So I would imagine that would be a hard thing, particularly the hyposmia versus anosmia. You know, if people can't smell or taste, then obviously they, they're a little bit better at identifying that. But, you know, hyposmia compared to what and compared to whom. So it's a interesting situation. So a couple other questions I had for you. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this name right. Moen and colleagues have a publication in IFAR from April that mm-hmm. did objective testing on COVID-19 patients. What are your thoughts on that paper? Yeah, that was really interesting. So a few things. So Bowen and colleagues looked at an inpatient population specifically. You know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I believe they found that less than 50% of them self-reported small loss. But then when they were tested using UPSITS, they found that essentially 99% of them, I think all but one, had these quantifiable findings of either hyposmia or anosmia. So what I took out of it is that certainly self-reported smell loss is underreported and that if you look at their distribution of what is hyposmia versus anosmia, there is still a fair distribution. I believe what they kind of find is that those who have anosmia are self-reporting it. So the percentage of those who actually have profound smell loss corresponded to the ones that self-reported smell loss. So if you go by that, it indicates that, yes, everyone has quantifiable smell loss to a certain extent, but I guess those who have profound smell loss also reported it. So in some ways, our numbers kind of match those, you know, in the inpatients in that the self-reporting is lower in the inpatient population. And then I think if we had taken our cohort and done objective testing, we may have shown, again, that everyone at a certain extent has some smell loss objectively. Interesting. Again, you talked about the, the some of the limitations and, and the recall bias was one of them. Another one of the, the limitations that you pointed out in the manuscript is that you really can't differentiate between hyposmia and anosmia based on the questions that you have or the retrospective review. And then, obviously, the patients, depending on the disease severity, you can't assess that. 
So there was a letter to the editor about this, pointing some of those out, and, and Claire Hopkins and her group from the United Kingdom wrote a letter, and, and, and it was really kind of a word of caution that with recall bias and, and with an emerging data, it's, they felt it wasn't possible to say that olfactory disturbances predicted a milder course. And so I thought you wrote a very nice, very eloquent response to that. Do you want to comment on that, your thoughts and uh, on the letter and the concerns brought up and your rebuttal to that? Absolutely. So I think Dr. Hopkins, Dr. Vera, and their colleagues I made a great point in their letter. And certainly our idea of suggesting that COVID-19 smell loss may be related to a milder course, first of all, does not imply that we think that your loss of smell or their lack of, of loss of smell should take part in your clinical judgment or someone's judgment of whether to admit someone or not. You know, and that alone as a symptom is not enough to carry the most of the weight of the clinical judgment of how the patient is doing. And so that's definitely not what we were suggesting in our manuscript and our study at all. I think their points are from a study that they published recently in the Neck Journal is that they're looking at a group of, I believe, Italy, a multi-center study in Italy of patients who were admitted as well as inpatients using some objective studies data looking at how people did throughout the course of time. And they found that very similar to the Millen study is that everyone had a similar amount of objective smell loss. But again, in that spread of the data, the ones that were admitted and inpatient were more likely to be hyposmic rather than anosmic. So uh, the severity of their smell loss it seemed to be a difference. I think it makes sense to me that certainly when you're doing objective data, you're, you basically have a lot more ability for granularity, and you're able to see that although underreported, people have smell loss throughout the whole spectrum, but those who are admitted potentially have milder cases of smell loss, I should say, and at least that's what my interpretation of their data showed. And so uh, I think they've made really great points that there's just a lot more research that needs to be done using maybe a matching of subjective and objective data. I think also the other caveat is that their patients were still on the relatively healthier side. So even the ones who were admitted were not intubated and ventilated. So they're looking at, you know, those, and, you know, certainly every healthcare system's uh, criteria for admission changes a little bit. It's that's a difficult thing to compare is what actually was a criteria for admission. And in our study for outpatient versus inpatient, we had a fair amount of people who were on the ventilators as well. So I think that's another thing to consider. What would you envision practitioners to do with this information? So not just otolaryngologists and ER doctors or, or primary care doctors or those types of things. What what do you think that they should take out of this? Well, first and foremost, we're really happy that, you know, the WHO and then other healthcare agencies around the world are recognizing smell loss as a symptom and screening for COVID-19 based on an acute loss of smell and taste. I think that's by far, everyone agrees on that's a big take-home point of all this research. And then in terms of what it means as a prognosticator, as a factor, I think for us in our study, we just want to kind of ring alarm that maybe those who are diagnosed with COVID-19 who don't have smell loss should be extra careful in observing their symptoms. 
often we see people, at least at UC San Diego, get diagnosed and then they're able, they're well enough to go home or stay at home. And then a few days later, they develop worsening symptoms of respiratory distress. It's almost like a second worsening that they've mm-hmm. not noticed in COVID-19. And I think that if anything, we just want the people, if there is certainly, you know, there's, that's the caveat itself is if there is a prognostication portion of smell loss, we want those who have no smell loss, but other classical symptoms for COVID-19 and that diagnosis to be extra careful and maybe be in close contact with their healthcare providers and go to the ED early for any sort of worsening symptoms. Certainly every patient should do that, but particularly those who maybe have other symptoms besides smell loss. Really a fascinating study, and, and I really appreciate you not only taking the time to talk to us about it, but also just doing that and, and uh, helping us. Uh, there's so many questions that we still have about the whole COVID-19, and you doing your part to help us with that. I really appreciate that. Before I let you go, i like to ask all of my authors a trivia question. So, okay. Oh, man. <laughs> are, you, are you a surfer? Oh, no, unfortunately. And I grew up in Southern California. I am the... Okay chronic disappointment of my <laughs> my friends and work partners as well. Adam well, that's not, uh, every day. Yeah, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So my question for you is, according to the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, how many shark attacks occurred in California from 1950 through September of 2019? Ooh. You know, I'm going to just throw one out there. I think I'll probably be okay. magnitudes off, to be honest. So this would be in a course of almost 70 years, uh-huh. maybe 300? Pretty close. Pretty close. 182. Okay. Uh, of those, and that's all of California. There's 21 in San Diego County, where you guys are now. So you can let Adam DeConde know that. 21 shark attacks in 70 years. 73 of those 182 occurred while surfing. But only 13 of them were fatal. So okay. that's not too bad. <laughs> That's not too bad uh, as far as risks. But even so, that's 13 too many for my preferences. Yeah, yeah. But maybe that will be added on to my list of excuses. Not there you go. That's great. that's great ammunition now. Perfect. All right. Well, Carol, thanks again for joining us. And thank you to uh, everybody for tuning in. And you can look for Dr. Yan's paper as well as all the other new papers at the IFAR website. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.